Hello, everyone. Welcome back. It's another episode of the Ramos Law Difference Makers podcast, where I, your host, Dr. Jim Hoven, get to talk to cool people every single weekend. Today is no exception. And today, we're talking about one of my very favorite things, and that is animals. I love animals, and I'm sure if you're watching or listening, you probably do too. But today, we're going to focus on horses, and specifically, a incredibly important issue for not only our country and its legacy, but also for the lives of wild horses, of which, by the way, there's a roughly 80,000, and, and we're gonna go into more into this, but my guests today are two champions for wild horses and making sure that they stay safe and wild. I have Deb Walker and Tracy Wilson today, and they are really important people in the American Wild Horse Campaign and in Wild Horse Connection. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello, thanks for having us. Absolutely. And and you know, I couldn't wait to get on this podcast with you. I thank you so much for carving out time from your day. When I was talking to one of our attorneys, Carrie Ramos here, Carrie is deeply involved in horses and, and she was raised with them and, and has a heart as big as all of Nevada for these animals. And when she said that we had the opportunity to visit with you both, I jumped on that quick as I could to say, hey, let's talk, let's talk about that. But as we get started, just kind of a way of introduction, could each of you take just a couple of minutes, introduce yourselves to our audience who might be listening or viewing anywhere, not only in the states where, where we are, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, but around the world, just talk a little bit about what you do and why you're so in love with wild horses. Okay, I guess I could go first. Um, I actually am a retired teacher and I had been coming to Nevada in the uh, Fish Springs area for several years and ran into some wild horses out here and um, would come out and uh, photograph them and, and watch them and, and got so interested in their family dynamics uh, and how they interacted with each other. And then, you know, fast forward when my husband retired from the military, he said, I've been dragging you around the country for 30 years. Where do you want to live? And I said, I want to live in Nevada with the wild horses. So we bought a, bought some land out here. We bought a house out here. And uh, I sat out with the wild horses almost every day, photographed them. I would uh, keep histories. I would uh, watch how they would deal with their children or their, their babies, um, how they would interact with each other. And I just could not believe that people didn't know this about wild horses. And of course, we know it about elephants and dogs and everything else as well. So that's how I got interested and started. And then I, I heard a rumor that the BLM was going to come in and take these horses that I literally bought a house so I could live around them. And that's how I got active in protecting them. And were you part of the, <clears throat> were you part of this group or did it, were, how long has this group been around with respect to the American Wild Horse Campaign? Were you instrumental in, did you join that or were you instrumental in founding it or? No, actually they were already, um, they were already established. And I, when I heard about this, I actually reached out to them and said, can you help us? And they said, yes, we can. So, um, myself and some neighbors started up a group 501c3 so that we could uh you know work with the blm and get a memorandum of understanding and start implementing this birth control that had just phenomenal uh a phenomenal record for over 30 years and uh that's exactly what we did and after about a year uh, you know, the American Wild Horse Campaign paid for everything, and they do that through donations, no tax dollars. And so we got started. We got our uh, MOU with the BLM, and that's basically how I got started. And I remained with that group for quite some time before I actually went to work for American Wild Horse Campaign a few years ago. Wow, that's so cool. What a great story. And... <clears throat> How about you, Tracy? Tell us your background into horse and wild horse management. Yeah, well, I am that little girl who never outgrew the love of horses. So, you know, <laughs> I used to dream about owning my own horse. I think I was 19 when I bought my first horse who happened to be a Spanish Mustang, which I knew nothing about at the time. They literally handed me papers because I'm that sucker that goes in and buys the animal that needs to be rescued. And she was in that case. And uh, I had her until she passed away 
uh, I sort of got out of horses when I had, I had my son when, but he was about four when she passed away and I was married and it was just hard to deal with boarding a horse and having a family. And, and then we got ready to move. We'd been coming down. I have family in Reno, Nevada for my whole life. And we'd been coming down to visit. I'd seen wild horses on my visits. And when we got ready to move, I thought, well, I, I'm done with horses. I sold all my tack, all my gear. And I moved down here and then I got sucked in. <laughs> <laughs> what? Okay. What sucked you in? What was the event? Well, I read a post. It was a local rep. They rescued some horses off our range and they needed help. And I volunteered to scoop poop. Literally, that was my entry into volunteering with the Virginia Range Wild Horses in Nevada. And so I started with that. And then in, in April of 2019, I, um, I spoke to Deb Walker at... We were at a large animal rescue training and she said, Hey, I need you to document for our program. And I was like, I can take pictures. I can do this. And so I got involved that way. And I fell in love with the data side of this, with tracking the, the ability. We have the ability to track every horse on the range by photographs, by their markings and colorings. And, and I got a little nerdy about it and kind of fell in love with the whole data side and uh, Deb and, and another coworker who's recently retired sort of just brought me along and kept pumping me up that I should come work for the organization. And pretty soon I was asked to work. And so I, I became a contractor part time. And then as of March of this year, I'm now a full time employee and I am um, the special projects manager. So I do a lot of different things, but I also still volunteer with our technical large animal rescue team. We do a lot of calls because of the wild horses and their proximity to people. And I volunteer with our range management team, which is Wild Horse Connection. So, you know, it's, we all work together really well. We have a bunch of organizations that really work strongly together for the protection of these horses. And it's been, it's been a lot of fun to be able to actually become employed in my passion. Oh, we should all be so lucky. I know I feel that way that I get to work with people that need help every day and with team members that are growing. And so I know what you're feeling, but to feel it for those big, huge animals, you know, my, my daughter was um, really, really into horses at a thing called the Western Ears here in Colorado. And, and they're a riding group, right? They're, they're precision riders and they jump and do tricks and all that kind of stuff. So I was around horses just enough where I, I am, amazed by them they I, they're magical their eyes are so big and their noses and you know we have huge dogs at our house and i always have to put my face by their face and my nose by their nose and so at a horse it's like a bigger 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 dog they just seem so friendly and so wonderful and the horses we're talking about right now they're wild and as i mentioned in this i i don't know if my number was exactly right but i think i read on the website that there's about eighty thousand of these wild horses in 10, in a kind of a 10 state region in the West. Is that right? I, I think that's what the, the BLM has recorded. Um, and, and, you know, they're the ones that do the uh, flyover census. So we, we tend to use their, their um, data in that sense. Yeah. And so with these horses, I, I know they're on millions and millions of acres. There's, we've mentioned a couple things, range management. We talked about, right, Tracy, we talked about, uh, large animal rescue and then wild horses and keeping them wild. So I think there's probably a misconception that you guys could help with. Cause for me, I thought it was a great thing when wild horses were going to be rounded up and then given new homes. And, and I think that's because we think that we need a home and we need this structure and we need this shelter. But, but after going through the information that you guys had, it's like maybe the best place for these these beautiful animals is right where they're at on these wild ranges. So is the is the purpose of the American Wild Horse Campaign to keep all wild horses wild, or is it to manage herd size and and take some of them? Or give give me kind of the the wild horse story. Our goal is humane management to manage their numbers on the range where they are. You know it. Even, even on our local range, when I talk about rescue, that's only horses that they have to be removed for an injury or something. We try not, we try always to keep wild horses wild. So, um, you know, there are some really interesting behavior aspects that go into wild horses. They live in family bands. They're loyal to their, you know, to their families. They're 
We had a, a mayor recently that just lost a baby and she stood over that baby and grieved for two solid days. So people that oh. think that these animals don't have emotions have not been on the ground to see this. You know, these and these and so we want to keep them in their family bands on the range while living the way that they have been born and lived for for decades, right? You know, we want them to stay out there. So our goal is to show that we can do human humane management of the numbers on the range without having to remove them, which comes at great cost to the taxpayer if we have to remove them. It's not just the yes. cost of the removals, which cost millions of dollars, but then to sustain those horses for the rest of their life in holding, you know, yes. because we don't have enough people to adopt the numbers that they're taking off. It's that's just not possible. Mm. And why are, why are they doing this? Because here's what I was fascinated by. As I was looking through and preparing, I saw that Congress did an act. They, they, they passed a, a law in 19, I think it was 71, and it's called the Wild Free Roaming Horses and Burrows Act. And so I know we're, we're talking about horses, but it's horses and burrows that are, that are in this category. And the protection status that they got for these beautiful animals, there's only one other animal that has it, and that's the bald eagle. So it, right. to me, it's pretty clear, like if they're supposed to be wild, then why are we not letting them be wild? Is it a population overgrowth issue? Is it like, what, why, how are people getting around this congressional law? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, whenever big money is involved, there's all kinds of propaganda that, that uh, is thrown out there, overpopulation, um, habitat de degradation, uh, you know, scaring off wildlife, uh, you know, not sharing water holes with cattle, uh, just all sorts of things that have been years and years and years of, of indoctrination to the American public. And just like you had mentioned about the adoption, um, you know, some horses do get adopted to good homes, but we're finding now, you may have read on the site that many of the adoption incentive horses are going to slaughter once the people get their um, their titles and they're they're being sold. And um, there's just a little thing saying, you know, I will not sell to slaughter. Well, if you, you know, take the horse to auction, you're not selling it to slaughter, but we know that's how they they go. So. Um, but why, why would a horse go to slaughter? I don't what, what do they do with horses that they take to slaughter. It's not like a cow where you're going to get steak from it or something. What's what? What's the purpose there? Um, the European market eats horse. Oh, really? Oh, wow. I, I had no They're idea. Sent out of, the horses are sent out of the country um, either by airplane uh, or, you know, they're packed into crates and put into, you know, uh, airplane bellies or they're shipped to Canada or they're shipped to Mexico because it's not legal to slaughter them here. There's no humane way to slaughter a long necked animal. So just slaughtering them is a horrific thought, but oh. knowing that they're suffering, it, it just takes it to a different level. So this is, and, and to take our protected Mustangs and, um, have this happen is, 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 uh, I mean, it's made things made of nightmares, you know? Uh, so, you know, the AWHC is tracking that and they're holding, you know, the BLM's feet to the fire and, and the burls, same thing The you know, they, what Tracy, how many are they rounding up right now? Burls? Oh, I, I mean, they're taking something like 19,000 horse horses and burrows this year in 2022. Right. 19,000. That's the goal. So they're they're trying to basically, if the numbers are right, they're trying to take 25% of the entire uh, wild horse and burrow population, right? right? If you're taking- There's 20, a lot of talk that eight. the horses are overpopulated, overgrazing, but these same lands are shared by livestock grazing per permittees. You know, they have a permit to graze their livestock on these public lands for prices that date back to the 80s without mm -hmm. a price increase. Mm -hmm. um, and the reality is that horses only exist on 17% of our public lands. They like to do a lot of talk about, oh, they're ruining all our public lands, but it's like actually the horses are only on 17% of our public lands. And the amount of cattle, while extremely large, only makes up a tiny percent of the actual beef market in our country. So if we mm -hmm. removed all the cattle from our public lands, 
you would barely notice a bump in the beef market. Our beef is raised in the Midwest where it belongs, not on arid desert lands in the West. That's not good grazing for cattle. I mean, they're back on lush pastures in the in the Midwest, and that's where it should be happening, not out here or not out here where it's arid desert land, you know. And so we get a lot of competition. There's also competition from mining rights and um, public recreation and, and different things. But there are ways that you know public recreation, use of public lands, can be managed alongside wildlife. The other problem that we see is that because there are livestock there, the livestock owners obviously don't want natural predators taking their livestock because mm -hmm. that costs them money. So a uh, wildlife department comes in and kills the predators. So now then they complain that the horses don't have any natural predators. Well, they do, but they've mm -hmm. removed or killed them all. But that, so, so is the horses, is the reason for them wanting horses, natural predators, to have horses with natural predators to keep the herd sizes down. And that's why that's then you guys come around with the natural kind of uh, fertilization control. Well, I mean, natural predators, that's natural life. All right. animals out there mm -hmm. have a balance when left alone between predation and prey that helps manage their own numbers if, if humans weren't involved. But of course we are involved. We are involved in multiple ways. So, but removing, removing predators and then saying that there's too much growth and they don't have any natural predators is a bit of a misconception. They do have them, they've just been removed. And, and I guess my thought would be, if I'm in your shoes and asking questions, I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about the number of um, predator-initiated herd management number. What does that look like? Is that 1,000 animals a year or is it 150? And how do you then manage that with what you guys are doing with, I know you guys are going to this later, but, but the darters that are, are part of that process, like it just seems to me like, you know, Number one, and, and I don't know, um, but is a horse really going to be unable to live alongside a cow? seems like that's not a big deal. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to predate on the cows. Right, um, right. And they're also, it seems to me that they're, humans are safe against wild horses as long as you're not a knucklehead and try to run amongst <laughs> them and, you know, go do right. all that kind of thing, right? Yeah. yeah. And I can speak to that. I, I live out here with wild horses and... I ride a mare and my, my good friend rides a mare and we have ridden all over this range and we have never had issue one. I know some, some people say that they will or they have, and I, I just haven't seen it in all the years that, that I've lived out here. And we actually have photos of the horses being afraid of the cows when the cows are at ponds or the sheep or you know any other wildlife they're they're kind of you know they're they're chickens they uh <laughs> they're prey animals so they're like oh my god what is that yeah so, i i did want to just circle back at something really quick um when tracy touched on the the grazing um and the prices the taxpayers also subsidize that so the difference between what they're paying and what they should be paying you and i and tracy are helping to pay that. Interesting. And so, so we're, so we're going to get hit either way. We're going to get hit to make, to make up the grazing prices. We're going to get hit to remove the horses that by law are not supposed to be removed. And we're, we're going to get hit to house those horses if we can find humane conditions for the rest of the horse life. And am I right in saying that horses can live like to be 30 or something? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's a lot of there's a lot of, of items in there. I'm still a little bit hung up on um, when you have a protection status, is it purely money of big lobbyists that, that can get around the fact that there's a congressional law or how, how did we get here? Um, well, I do know, and I don't, don't know this law as well as I should, so shame on me, but the, the Burns Act um, kind of went in and did what happens to some good legislation and put in some pretty hefty loopholes. And so those are used now uh, with the protection, uh, like, oh, they're starving. And yet they're rounding up horses that have body scores of fours and fives. And, uh, oh, they're, you know, there's no water. Well, 
um, you know, they're sharing water and, and there is water if they just leave them alone and, and let them, you know, so they use all these things to, to say, this is why we have to round them up for their own good. Um, and then they do also do it because of uh, round them up because of uh, habitat, habitat degrega degradation, which I have to tell you um, is, is just a bunch of baloney. When I went out to Utah for the Anaki roundup prior to that, I drove through what seriously looked like moonscape. I mean, it was so, it, really, I'd never seen anything like it and it had been sheep grazed. And when I went over the hill to where the horses were, <laughs> it was like a utopia. It was beautiful. They hadn't hammered it. The water source was perfect. They weren't, you know, uh, pooping in it or, you know, it was just they go and drink and they go off. They they can go up to 30, 40 miles a day. So they don't, you know, they, they pretty much roam around. They don't just plop down and graze down to nothing. And as soon as those horses were gone, in came the livestock. Mm, wow. And, yeah, wow is right. You know, what we're talking about right now is the hard part of this where we see that there's a problem, right? There's an issue for some people, like for people like you and, and, and me now as a, a new, um, I'm, in, I'm open to this, these concepts, I'm kind of like, I don't understand. And you guys are like, this is insanity. And I'm sure there's other people that like, oh yeah, there's not enough this, that, or the other, so we gotta do it. But as we start learning about these things, we need to be in good communication with the powers that be to, so that we can fight and we can work when necessary and do the right thing for the horses and for our history. I know that they were talking about the fact that, um, in fact, I wrote this down, that having these horses protected is because they are living symbols of the historic and pioneer spirit of the West. And that's just so cool, right? We don't wanna forget our heritage and where we come from, so to have that be the description in the in the um, law that Congress passed back in 71, you know, I think we need to keep that in mind. And, and and so as we're going through what you guys do, if I remember right, there's kind of four different things that your organizations do. And one is you um, try to find legislation, right? Like you try to do something with updating laws or something to to that effect. And then the second one is you litigate, like you'll, you'll sue people, states, counties, whoever it might be. And you can explain this better on getting that done is three, you advocate, if I remember correctly, on behalf of the horses and the people that love them. And then the fourth thing is where you do this, this herd control through humane, natural methods. Can you guys kind of speak to that four pronged mission of, of what you're doing to protect these beautiful animals? Sure. I mean, we have a we have a legislative team that they are constantly talking to legislators, educating legislators. I mean, as you can imagine, there's a lot of people sitting in an office in Washington, D.C. that don't live out here, that don't really have any idea what's happening. So a lot of it is is really opening their eyes to the situation, um, bringing in some facts that maybe they haven't been given, showing them how it can be done with our pilot program here on the Virginia Range. Um, our team is working, you know, they're, they're educating legislators and, and policymakers all the time. Um, litigation, yes, that happens too. And then also working on, on getting laws passed. As Deb mentioned earlier about slaughter, uh, the way we keep slaughter from happening in this country right now is that there is no uh, USDA funded uh, oversight of slaughter for horses. And so every year through appropriations, that has to be re-included in the language so that we make sure for another year, no slaughter plants can open in this country. Um, you know, we would all like to see the SAFE Act, pack, Safe Act passed, which would then make it a law that we're not slaughtering horses in this country. And, and also they just tried to strengthen that to also prevent us from shipping horses across the border mm -hmm. to be slaughtered just because we can't slaughter them here. So mm -hmm. that law would make a huge difference. And so that's all a lot of the work. And then, like you said, the educating the public, you know, huge public education, trying to get it out there when there's important things the public needs to know about so that they can reach out to their lawmakers in their state, in their, you know, district, whatever that may be. And so that they can also participate in this to help. I mean, anybody can request 
a, a meeting with their legislators. It doesn't mean it'll be granted, but they can request it. Oftentimes they'll get a meeting with staff. You can pick up the phone and talk to the staff of your legislators. Um, during business hours, they have people there. That is their job to answer those calls. Mm -hmm. So we really work with people to make those calls because unless our voices are heard, nothing's going to change. Amen. That is so, so true. I've, and that, that's true in anything, right? Like if you, if you have a thought or an opinion, you need to share it so you can get conversation going and, and make positive change. And as you guys are going through that process, how is it that you use advocacy and education, especially if someone's not living in the states that we're talking about? I think the 10 states, and I don't know them off the top of my head, but the one I'm in, Colorado, where you guys are, Nevada, I think Arizona, California, you know, everything in, in that area, Utah, probably Idaho, all of that, that part of the country. If someone lives in Ohio, I would imagine that somewhere there might be some wild horses in Ohio. I don't know, but how, how do you make a connection? How do you make a connection with someone that doesn't get to see these animals like this and, and have them find an interest in their heart to, to support right. this effort? You know, we live in the world of, of digital social media. And right. so that is a huge outreach. We have a huge following on social media. We try to reach all avenues of social media. We have an incredible uh, videographer who does amazing document documentaries surrounding our work, surrounding the horses. We try to try to really get people to understand individual horses, their bands, their families, how they function on the range so that they can make that connection, that connection that you're talking about, like they're way back there in Ohio or somewhere. Do they care about this horse out here? But let me show you how this horse lives. Let me show you where he lives. Let me show you how he interacts with his with his mares and with his babies. And that then makes a connection. Somebody's like, wow, that's incredible. I don't want to see this animal get harmed. You know, that that that's where we really strive to make that connection for people who aren't lucky enough to live right here where they roam. Oh, so and good. In, and in addition to that, when the horses get in trouble, that same social media avenue is a way to say, all right, we need you to call uh, your legislators right now. This is what, what we need you to ask of them. Right. And so, and AWHC has a, a, a great Facebook page and um, Instagram and, and, and everything. However, the communities all have pages as well. Virginia Range has Stay Wild. Out here in Fish Springs, we have the Pine Net Wild Horse Advocate Group, and then we have Fish Springs Alliance that shows the families. And it's it's like watching a newsreel every day, like, oh, Zorro <laughs> lost his band, you know, and, um, and, and, you know, people are just captivated by it all over the world. We're, we're talking. You yeah, know, people come from all over the world to visit these horses. Yes. Wow. Australia. Uh, I had a, a veterinary team from um, the UK come visit. They had uh, one of our stallions had to be put down and they wanted to come and look at his skeleton. And, uh, it, it, you know, just so. So that's a great way to um, reach people worldwide. You know, it's interesting that you say that I did a an episode of the show that you guys might want to go check out um, with an artist, a photographer. Her name is Guadalupe and we call her Guad. And she did a whole book, which I, I have at my house, a, a coffee table book that's, you know, oversized, beautiful book on the Icelandic wild horses. Oh, and fantastic. absolutely gorgeous book. And, and so she goes into some of that. And, you know, we've talked so far in the first part of the show about the problem and some of the initiatives. I'd like to now transition to help people get a connection to these animals. Can you guys describe the family unit, what it's like to watch them run and some of the things they do, because to me that just the, the thought of a group of horses traipsing across a, a field, and I've seen it just a couple of times here in Colorado when I've been fishing, seen this kind of thing happen and it raises my energy, right? It fills my soul. So I'd love for you, if you can explain to us a little bit about wild horse life. Yeah. Hey, I, I'm going to tell the recent history uh, or the recent rescue on our, our range, but Tracy's got a million stories because she, <laughs> she has done, you know, like a full release or something. It's just unbelievable. So we had a mare that somehow got her foot stuck into a dog toy, one of those big tires. And we were hoping it would come off, hoping it would come off. Never did. So the group set up a, a catch pin. We finally got her in there. 
the BLM graciously came and got her and the, the, her four band sisters is what we'll call them, would not leave her side. So they had to take those horses along with the mare with the toy on her foot <laughs> in order to get them to the um, facility to take it off. Wow. And so then, um, because they have panels in between, so they had her in this panel and the horses just kind of waited. And so on the range was her stallion, Carson, her mom, Scarlett, and her band sister, Sydney. And she was, and by the way, they don't like it when we name them. We'll, we'll talk about that a little later, right, Tracy? <laughs> but anyway, um, so about an hour later, and they stayed right where they had put her in the trailer. The minute that that truck and trailer came over the hill, that stallion started calling to his mare in that truck and, and the other girls. And they came up and they stood and waited for that gate to come open. Wow. Yeah. So they recognized the truck. They recognized oh, the yeah. trailer. Oh, they're smart. Yeah. Oh my yeah. goodness. Like when I go out to the range, I have a, a, a hitch on the back of my car and it's always the truck that I've used on the range. And every time they, they can hear that come out there and they go, oh, that's just Deb. She's just here to take pictures. <laughs> Oh, that's um, funny. They know. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, hi. Uh, but they do. And and I could not believe. And I was so glad that the BLM Wild Horse and Burrow Specialists witnessed that because generally speaking, they try to, um, for a lack of a better word, dehumanize them. Or, you know, what, what am I trying to say, Tracy? Yeah. No, I, I get it. Yeah, they're, they're just an animal. Yeah. They're, they're not a right. they're not a, a social network. They're they're a creature out just roaming around. Yeah. 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 So that that's that's a very recent story that happened that I thought was just sweet. So beautiful. What about you, Tracy? Tell us some some stuff about horse life and what these animals are like. Get us get our hearts open to to these beautiful well, creatures. Let me start with the band structure. So mm -hmm. a lot of people don't really know what to call. Is it a herd? Is it what is it? So a herd is any large number of the animals in a certain area, but the bands are where the families are. So there's a band of horses and that's a family and that usually has a band stallion and then he sometimes will have a lieutenant stallion not always and then it usually consists of his mares and his and his young usually when the boys hit about two years old the band stallion's gonna tell them goodbye he's gonna kick him out they've reached sexual maturity he doesn't want a challenge for him trying to take some of those mares so they will kick them out and those boys that get kicked out form what we call bachelor bands. They are absolutely my most favorite on the range. Yeah. They are so entertaining. I could sit and watch them for hours. Because these boys then, they, it's just, think of a bunch of adolescent boys running around trying to figure out their way in the world. And they're trying to be macho and they spar and teach each other to fight. And, and people will freak out and they'll be like, oh my God, they're trying to kill each other. And they'll spar for a while and then they just stop and they walk away together and start grazing. Like it's not, <laughs> it's, it's just, and they're so comical. They lay their legs over each other and they play and they rough house, but it's all part of the learning process. It's how they learn, it's how they grow and get strong to be a stallion who then one day starts challenging another stallion to, to acquire his own mares. And so, you know, the, the structure of the family's understanding that is just huge. And their bonds are strong. Like I told you about the one that grieved her baby. But last year we had a, a band had gotten into a fenced property and then something spooked them and they ran out, but the baby got separated. And we had a team out there in the dark trying, trying, trying. And these, these horses are fighters. They are survivors. And this little baby had all the instinct to survive in the world and they just could not get her. So what they ultimately did, they worked with the landowner, shut the gate for the night. The next morning we went back and we set up a, a shoot and we, we were finally able to get this baby into the trailer. We had other volunteers out looking for the family band. They found them on another property. They held them there. We came up with the trailer and same as Deb's thing, that mama, heard that baby inside the trailer as it was backing down the driveway and her head shot up and she started calling. We opened the gate and the baby's standing there looking out and wild horses don't willingly step on a trailer. This mama walked up to the back of the trailer and put her two front legs in and got almost all the way in just to retrieve her baby. And they turned around and went out. And of course the baby immediately started nursing and 
and all the aunties were around. And I mean, their bonds are incredibly strong. How big are the family bands? Is there typically like six or 15? You know, I would say on average, they're in that six to eight size, but we have them as small as two or three and as large as 14, 16. You wow. know, it just, it just depends. Those, the large ones are tough. Those stallions have to work hard to keep that many horses <laughs> together. I imagine. It's a lot. And do the bands merge to form herds? So herds has several bands within it? In it? They do, yeah. And they will, you'll see it when there's times of predators in the area, you'll see all those bands come together in a big herd because there's safety in numbers. Mm -hmm. So uh, we do see that quite a bit actually. And in the winter time when the mares aren't in estrus, so they're not worried about breeding so much, they tend to hang around a little more in the spring when the mares start, you know, cycling and they want to be breeding or whatever, then they, they'll tend to spread out a little bit more, but yeah, they will definitely come together in big herds. Mm. And do, is there a time, cause you talked about horse rescue. Is there a time sometimes to take these um, horses that are wild and move them into captivity for their best interests? If you have to rescue them and that kind of thing? Sure. So if we have, if we have a horse um, that is injured, typically we'll monitor that horse on the range, try to keep it wild. If it becomes a situation where they need veterinary interference, um, if it's something that can be a quick uh, vet treatment where we can pull them, get them the treatment they need, get them back out very quickly, the NDA works with, that's the Nevada Department of Agriculture who oversees our horses. They'll work with us to allow that to happen. And then there's times where it's like, this horse needs to come off, it's gonna be a couple months for it to recover. During that time, it's gonna become dependent on humans. So at that point, the best choice for that horse is then to put it into an adoption situation, get it a good home, let it let it lead a d domestic life, get some training, that type of thing. And our range management team, try, she works with a trainer. They try to make sure any horse they adopt out has the basics. They can be haltered, have their feet trimmed, get vet care. And then from there, somebody can take that horse on for training for saddle use or whatever, you know, they want to do. But for them, you know, we try to keep them as wild as we can. Is there a different life cycle in the horses if they remain wild versus not like I know wolf packs, the average wolf pack, if I remember right, the the wolves will grow maybe seven, eight years old and then their life is done as opposed to a, a domesticated dog they're they live longer is is there anything that has been shown or what you guys have seen where a horse left oh, yeah. to to be on the range they have a, a life cycle that's different than especially if it's been converted because i would imagine some of them if they don't get with another band and i don't know if they can switch bands after you know if they get separated do they get a new band and, and does that change their their life expectancy I don't think changing bands changes the mm -hmm. life expectancy. And while I think a lot of people would say, oh, they don't live as long in the wild, it's a harder life. In the last two years, we've had some older horses die and we've had the vet check their teeth. And these horses have been aged at 30 years, living wow. wild. On wow. So, you know, it's pretty impressive. They're, they, they're tough. They are. Trees. They are without our intervention that w would put a domestic horse owner in the hospital themselves having to deal with, you know, it's just, <laughs> we've seen some horrendous, uh, it's amazing injuries they can overcover just overcome. Yeah. yeah. And do they ever take is part of the management cycle or system. If they're saying that there's too many horses in one area, can they take them and transplant them? Like I know they do, you know, if a bear doesn't, doesn't do X, Y, and Z, then they take the bear and they try to move it farther away so it doesn't come in contact with humans. Now, if it does A, B, C, then that bear is gonna be euthanized. Is there any kind of program where the horses are relocated as opposed to rounded up for one of these other things? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, we try not to do it any more than we have to, but on our particular range, now this is not probably true for the BLM, but on our particular range in the Virginia range, which is almost 300,000 acres, so it's a good sized range. Mm -hmm. If we have some horses that have, and we've had this happen in the past where they've gotten into a neighborhood, they've gotten very habituated to well-meaning, but not well, you know, well-meaning people that hand feed them or do something they shouldn't. And that, that then creates a situation where that horse is gonna keep coming back because they're like, oh, free food. 
So that becomes then problematic, then obviously not all the neighbors are going to appreciate that and start complaining. So we have, we'll set up a trap, load those horses up and put them on a different part of the range that's more remote, that keeps them away from the people, gets them back to their natural life and let them be without the human interference. And as, as far as the roundups go, once those horses are, are taken, it, that's pretty much it. However, there is a, uh, has been talk with AWHC in, you know, that 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 part of their plan as far as um, their goals, what they would like to see happen is for the HMAs that have been zeroed out for horses to just to, to go back there. And that's one one thing that they have talked about. Can you explain that? I, what What's an HMA and zeroed out? Sorry about that. Uh, HMA horse management area. Those are the uh, designated areas by that law where the horses are allowed to live. And so when they take all the horses away, they've zeroed it out. So, you know, AWHC has talked about, well, wouldn't it be great if they could just take horses and repopulate it, you know? And yes. of course, all, you know, the horses are gelded and, and so forth. But um, so that's been talked about, but it, it has not happened. Okay. So, and so now the, I guess the direction that you guys see this, I know, Tracy, we were talking offline and before the show started, you're kind of involved in a, in a horse roundup of something that's going like, you're keeping an eye on it or, or something of that sort, right? Of Oh, um, I think what Deb was referring to is there is a current roundup happening. I'm not there. We do have people on the ground there, but there's a current roundup happening. Um, I believe it was Twin Peaks, is that right, Deb? I think so, yeah. Yeah, um, the first two days of the roundup were horrific. Um, there was pens set up for the trap that were too small for the volume of horses that they were bringing in. Uh, they ran 100 horses easily into a pen that probably should have held no more than 30 or 40. Oh. Horses were literally climbing over the top of each other. It was a bad scene and they literally started to, the pen started to break apart. The panel started to come apart and there were men on the ground holding the panels with their hands while thousand pound animals are climbing over the top of each other, trying to get out through these openings. And I, I'm pretty sure what Deb's referring to is my horror in that is somebody could have died. Never mind the yes. horses that died and horses did die in that uh, one horse was severely injured in her face and had to be euthanized. Another stallion broke a leg and had to be euthanized. Um, but a human could have died and any other government contract would have been shut down by OSHA. I don't know why this is allowed for this. Any other government contractor would have to have that kind of oversight to make sure employees are safe and have safety equipment. There was nobody there with a helmet on their head. I'm part of the rescue team. We trap horses. We all wear safety helmets because one knock to the head and you're a goner. You know, it, it's astounding to me that that kind of safety lapse can happen on a government contract and put people's lives in danger. Yeah, and, and I, it might be safe to say that it's one of those that unless anybody's there to say anything, the, the word never gets back to the, the contractor, right? Like there's, right. it's interesting how and you mentioned it, Deb, earlier, how money can play such a huge role in the light that gets shined on something or the lack of light that does not get shown on something based on funds. You know, I mean, we've seen it here at the law firm where um, government contracts have caused people to do some really bad things on certain products to protect certain that are meant to protect certain populations are actually hurting them. And because someone took a shortcut for money. And so when we see things like what you're talking about, yeah, it's if, if whatever should happen, in my opinion, it should be really done the right way so that everything that can be possibly done to protect the animals and the people involved is being done. But what I hear you say is that might not always be the case. Right, and I will say that AWHC filed an animal welfare procedure complaint and the next day they were bringing them in in much smaller numbers. What most people don't realize is these contracts for the for the roundup contractors, they pay by the horse. Oh, dead or alive. They are driven wow. by numbers. And so they don't tell them, hey, in order to make sure that this population is healthy, we need to take 17. They just say, go get as many as you can. 
Well, I believe that they were probably told after that happened that they had to bring them in in smaller numbers because it did start happening, but it never should have happened in the first place. Agreed. Uh, that is that is a situation that occurred because he could, not because he should. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, well, and, and let me say this too, like our uh, senator here in, in Nevada has been take, taken to a roundup and um, I'm quite certain it was a, a soft roundup. And uh, if if our senators and House of Representatives could see the reality of it, they would never allow this to happen. But they're shielded from it and they're told a completely different story. Oh, they're going to starve. This is why we have to do this. And and it, it's um, it, we are up against the giant. We really and truly are. Well, I'll tell you, the, the advantage I think you guys have, you've already talked about, Tracy, with the social media and, you know, videographers. I, I notice even on your website, there's some videos of some really just, it's not for, for some with the animal uh, heart for animals, it's hard to watch, right? Some of that stuff. And so I think getting that into some of these lawmakers hands might be good. And, and, you know, so that would be one thing that you're probably already doing. But another thing that hit my mind as you guys were talking, there's been, um, what would you call them? There were campaigns to raise awareness and money for whatever. It could be a, a child in another country, or it could be a certain animal where you adopt an animal. You know, you say, hey, and you mentioned it like, you know, keeping the bands together. Is there a, <clears throat> a campaign that could be done that would assure, like, if I send $100, that goes towards keeping this band together. You can be sure that, and I now am tied emotionally to my band. The, like what you said, you know, it's the it's the um, Mustang with with his harem and their children. That's my that's my group, and I, I don't know if that's something that could be done for fundraising as well. Yeah, it is interesting. It's it's a little bit hard when you can't guarantee that you won't round it up. Yep, yep. It's um. Sorry. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Hey, listen, that's a horse. That's a roundup dog. That that dog just what do you call them? Well, here. <laughs> you know um. You talked about numbers. One of the things that the um, that happens is the BLM has their, you know, how many horses they'll allow on this HMA. And so they'll go in and they'll pull off and they either go low AML or high AML or, you know, to, to pull those horses off. They're supposed to leave them in a situation where their genetics are viable. I don't know that that always happens, um, but uh that's that's the way that they they do the numbers and i will tell you back to your other question is um we at one time had in fish springs here had some horses taken away and there was enough money raised through social media to keep those families together one family had what three or four generations right tracy wow wow and um so we all were given horses to bid on they wouldn't give them to us um, they wouldn't let us, you know, buy them. We had to bid on them against other people um, online. And we ended up getting every single horse. And all those horses are now living together in sanctuary because people donated money to keep those horses together. Wow. See that? And that's a really incredible effort of combining the heart for the animals with the tools available and resources for the for a specific group. I think that's amazing. And I mean, the work you guys are doing is so important. I can't thank you enough. As we kind of come to the end of the show, is there anything that you would want people to know that we already haven't talked about as far as something about the horses or the burrows or something that they could do to help make a difference or to get connected with your, your project? Well, I don't want to get off the show without talking about our, the world's largest wild horse fertility control project. It was just done right here in Nevada. Before I retired, I was the project coordinator and um, Tracy's basically running that um, now and I'm helping her as a retired person. <laughs> but um, this program we have delivered almost 6,000 treatments. We've treated almost 1,800 mares, right, Tracy? A little over 1,700, yeah. Yes, and um, we have reduced the population, or not the population, but the, the amount of foals that hit the ground by 60%. And this program, I wanna talk about difference makers here. This program is run by volunteers 
on the ground in 103 degree temperature or 10 degree temperature in the <laughs> snow out there with their scientific database. And they are uh, giving mares birth control. It's reversible. It's made from pig proteins. And I'm just speeding through this very quickly. We can treat a mare for $70 in her first year and 700 over her lifetime. If she's picked up in a roundup, it's $1,000 just for her, according to BLM, and I think it might be more now. And then for that horse, 50,000 for her lifetime to be in holding. Wow. So you, look at, you look at our program that's run by donations, not in grants, not by taxpayer dollars, and administrated by volunteers who get out there and document and spot and, um, and implement this fertility control. It is really a model. And what we did is we asked the, the uh, Nevada Department of Agriculture, don't round up to AML. Let us work with a population that you think is overpopulated. We don't ever think that. Um, yeah. and, and show how we can work this program for three to five years. And we're doing it and it's being successful and it's being looked at worldwide. Mm -hmm. So people can always contribute to the Virginia Rage Fertility Control Program through uh, American Wild Horse Campaign, but but I can't speak highly enough of the people who are retired in their 60s and 70s, out there humping the hills, <laughs> looking for horses, and and treating these mares. Oh, man, you guys, that's so beautiful. And so people may want to get involved, whether they want to get trained as as one of these folks to help with fertility control or donate money or just be a, an activist voice? How can they do that with, uh, with your group? They can go to the AmericanWildHorseCampaign.org website um, and there's gonna be more opportunities as we expand. The, the BLM now has $11 million in their budget for fertility control. So as we expand and start putting in some proposals to do fertility control on other ranges, there will be help needed. So, you know, they should they should go to the website, submit volunteer applications for sure. Oh, that's beautiful. We would love to get veterans involved in our darting program. Absolutely. Oh, so good. Well, you guys, you've been a treat. You've made my heart full by sharing the beautiful lives of these horses with us. Whether you're watching this or listening to it, I hope it tugged on your heartstrings like it did mine. Please share this with someone. And if you can, get involved. If you have a heart for horses, talk to these guys, reach out, see what you can do to be part of the solution to keep these wild horses wild. And um, obviously you have a friend with us in, in Ramos Law. We wish you guys much, much continued success and uh, thank you for guarding this most, most blessed treasure that we have. Absolutely, thank you so much thank for having you. us. Yes, you thank bet. you very much. Ladies, have a wonderful day. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye.